Welcome to another episode of the Reformation Roundtable podcast. My name is Joe Stout, and this podcast is a ministry of Christ Covenant Church in Centralia, Washington. During each episode, you will hear the sermons, liturgy, discussions, and interviews from the various weekly gatherings here at Christ Covenant Church. If you would like to find out more, please visit us online at ChristCovenantCentralia.com. Please enjoy the following audio. Let us rise and worship the triune God. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And also to you. From Psalm 111. Praise ye the Lord, I will praise the Lord with my whole heart in the assembly of the upright and in the congregation. His work is honorable and glorious, and righteousness, and his righteousness endureth forever. He hath made his wonderful works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion. He hath given meat unto them that fear him. He will ever be mindful of his covenant. He hath showed his people the power of his works, that he may give them the heritage of the heathen. The works of his hands are verity and judgment. All his commandments are sure. They stand fast forever and ever, and are done in truth and uprightness. He sent redemption unto his people. He hath commanded his covenant forever. Holy and reverend is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all they that do his commandments. His praise endures forever. So lift up your hearts. Let us pray. Great are thy works, O Lord, sought out by those who love you. Grant us, thy servants, to praise with due confession the glory of the Creator, and search out with reverent wisdom thy faithful commandments, and achieve with obedient fear the perfect comeliness of understanding. Wherefore we say, Glory be to the Father, who hath sent redemption unto his people. Glory be to the Son, who hath given us the meat of his new covenant as a memorial of his wondrous works. Glory be to the Holy Ghost, the Spirit of understanding and of the fear of the Lord, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. And amen. Amen. We're continuing to work our way through the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and this morning we come to question 30, which asks... How doth the Spirit apply to us the redemption purchased by Christ? The Spirit applied to us the redemption purchased by Christ by working faith in us and thereby uniting us to Christ in our effectual calling. Well, we are studying how it is that God saves us. And last week we said that it is God the Holy Spirit who applies Christ's redemption to us. The way that the Holy Spirit brings this about is by working faith in us. Faith is what unites us to Jesus, and therefore uh, we should want to understand more deeply what exactly this saving faith is. So what is saving faith? According to Hebrews 11.1, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. From this description, we learn that the object of our faith must be something invisible and outside of our present possession. 
As Paul says in Romans 8, 24, we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope, for nobody hopes for what they already have. So faith only exists when we do not presently have or presently see that thing we are hoping for. And in the case of saving faith, the thing we are hoping for is to see God face to face. 1 Corinthians 13, 12. Therefore, uh, we could define faith as follows. Faith is a belief in God's word such that something that is not visible to us now is held as certain because God is the one who promised it. I'll say that again. Faith is a belief in God's word such that something that is not visible to us now is held as certain because God is the one who promised it. In more technical terms, we say that faith is a habit of the mind whereby eternal life is begun in us, making the intellect assent to what is not apparent. That's your more technical scholastic definition, if that one's more memorable. So what is faith? Faith is an action in your soul. Specifically, it is an action of your free will to judge in your intellect that what God says is true. And when you make that judgment in your mind, you then have in your possession the substance of what you hope for and the evidence of things unseen. Moreover, this genuinely free action of your will is something that God moves you to do by his Holy Spirit. As Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So faith is an action that you freely and really do, and yet it is an action that God gives you to do. And therefore, no man can boast against another that he has faith while someone else does not. For as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, Who makes you to differ from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Faith is a gift of the Holy Spirit. It is a gift from God the Father and God the Son, who is the author and finisher of our faith. Hebrews 12.2 And therefore, we should be confident to say with the Apostle, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. To contemplate this truth should remind us of our need to confess our sins. So as you're able, let us kneel before the Lord. Father, we confess all of these sins to you in Jesus' name. And amen. amen. Let us rise for the assurance of God's pardon. The enemies of God are brought down and fallen. But we are risen and stand upright. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is God's mercy towards them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Saints of Christ's covenant church, because you have confessed your sins, holding nothing back, it is my joy to announce to you that your sins are forgiven through Christ. Thanks be to God. Our sermon text this morning comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12, verses 1 to 12. These are the words of God. And he began to speak unto them by parables. A certain man planted a vineyard and set an hedge about it and digged a place for the wine vat and built a tower and let it out to husbandmen and went into a far country. And at the season he sent to the husbandmen a servant that he might receive from the husbandmen of the fruit of the vineyard. 
And they caught him and beat him and sent him away empty. And again he sent unto them another servant. And at him they cast stones and wounded him in the head and sent him away shamefully handled. And again he sent another and him they killed and many others beating some and killing some. Having yet therefore one son, his well-beloved, he sent him also last unto them, saying, They will reverence my son. But those husbandmen said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance shall be ours. And they took him, and killed him, and cast him out of the vineyard. What shall therefore the Lord of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the husbandmen, and will give the vineyard unto others. And have ye not read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected is become the head of the corner. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they sought to lay hold on him, but feared the people, for they knew that he had spoken the parable against them, and they left him and went their way. Let us pray. Father, we praise you who are Lord of the vineyard. We thank you for sending your beloved son to suffer and die on our behalf so that we might be made heirs of your kingdom. Make us to abide in Christ who is the vine, for we ask this in Jesus' name, and amen. Amen. When God created the first man... It says in Genesis 2.15 that the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. So what was man's first job? It was to be a guardian and servant in God's garden. God had already planted the garden. It was already bearing fruit. And Adam's job was to be a faithful steward and cultivator of what God had given him. Moreover, uh, when Adam and Eve were married, God commanded them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Together, they were to extend the fruitfulness of God's garden to wherever the four rivers from Eden flowed. Uh, Later in Israel's history, we learn that the priests were given this same task of guarding and keeping the tabernacle. In Solomon's temple, there were cherubim and palm trees and flowers and pomegranates carved into the walls so that to enter the temple was like entering the Garden of Eden again. To worship at the temple was to return to paradise. Likewise, in Ezekiel's visionary temple, we see a river of healing waters that flow from the sanctuary. It says in Ezekiel 47 verse 12, Along the bank of the river on this side and that will grow all kinds of trees used for food. Their leaves will not wither, their fruit will not fail. They will bear fruit every month because their water flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for medicine. So from the very beginning, God gave to man the task of tending his garden sanctuary. Adam, like a priest, was to cultivate God's vineyard and give him the produce from it. This was instituted in the law by the various harvest festivals wherein 
the Israelites would bring their first fruits, their tithes and offerings, and offer them to God at his sanctuary. Of course, these literal fruits were themselves symbolic of the person offering them. What are you and I made out of? Well, we're made out of the earth. We cultivate the earth. Everything that we eat somehow comes from the earth. The earth feeds us. And so to give God the fruit of the earth is really to give him a portion and part of ourselves. We offer to God our first and our best produce as a sign that he owns us. We give God tribute and a tithe to remind ourselves that we are stewards. We are servants. God is in charge. He is Lord. He is master. And to him belongs everything. Now, if we were to survey the entirety of Scripture, we would learn that human beings are signified by different kinds of plants and trees. Uh, Perhaps most famously, uh, we read in Psalm 1 that the person who meditates upon the law of God day and night is like what? A tree. A tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth fruit in his season. His leaf does not wither. Whatsoever he does prospers. The ungodly are not so, but what are they like? They're like the chaff, which the wind driveth away. So in the Bible, there are wicked and ungodly men who are thorns and thistles, chaff and bramble bushes. And then there are the godly, you, the saints, who are as cedars of Lebanon, as pillars in the house of God. You are as Yachin and Boaz at the entrance of the temple. Or perhaps you are as Esther. Her her name is Hadassah, and Hadassah just means myrtle, or referring to the myrtle tree. So this humble and fair myrtle tree. Or they are as children who grow up like olive trees around the table. Or as Psalm 144 verse 12 prays, that our sons may be as plants grown up in their youth, that our daughters may be as pillars sculptured in palace style. So from Genesis To Revelation, human beings are portrayed as different kinds of plants and trees. And the nation of Israel itself is identified, among other things, as the vineyard of God. So we heard uh, when Luke read from Isaiah 5, God says, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant plant. He looked for justice, but behold, oppression. For righteousness, but behold, A cry for help. So people are trees. The vineyard is the nation of Israel. And what is the fruit that God desires? Well, in Isaiah 5, it was justice and righteousness. Uh, We heard in Galatians 5, Paul expands this saying, What are the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. So this is what it means to bear fruit for God. When God placed Adam in the garden to tend and to keep it, he put him there to bear spiritual fruit. And the test for Adam was to obey God by not stealing fruit from one forbidden tree. This test, of course, Adam and Eve failed, and the history of Israel in the Old Testament is the story of many sons and daughters of Adam and Eve failing again and again. So I say all this by way of 
preparation for this parable. Jesus comes along and tells this parable of the vineyard, and we find that uh, unlike some of Jesus' other parables, which we have to admit can be difficult and obscure at times, uh, this one is pretty easy to understand. This one is so easy to understand that even the scribes, the Pharisees, and the elders understand uh, they're in it. (laughs) It's not always a good thing, right? So this morning, I want to Uh, Consider this parable from really two perspectives. First, I want to consider it in the just kind of original historical context and setting, which is it's a judgment from Jesus on the leaders in Jerusalem. So we'll walk through the text looking at that. But second, I want to uh, apply this parable to us, the church today, because uh, we are now God's vineyard. We are now the vineyard of the Lord. So first, We'll look at it as it applies to Jesus' audience and then uh, as it applies to us. So let's uh, expound our text, starting in verse 1. It says, And he began to speak unto them by parables. A certain man planted a vineyard and set an hedge about it and digged a place for the wine vat and built a tower and led it out to husbandmen and went into a far country. All right, so here's the setup. And now we have to... uh, this. Uh, of all the parables, this one is very allegorical. So we kind of have to just, let's uh, connect all these different characters and figures with what they signify. So who is the certain man who planted the vineyard? Well, this is God, uh, and it specifically is God the Father. Uh, he is later called the Lord of the vineyard who sends his well-beloved son. This is how we know it's, it's the Father. Uh, what is the hedge around the vineyard? Well, uh, we don't know totally for sure, but most likely this refers to the law of God, which was what separated Israel from the nations. Or perhaps it might refer to the angels who were ordained to administer that covenant. So Paul says in Galatians 3.19, What purpose does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. So uh, God gave the law to preserve his people until Christ the seed would come. And then he says, uh, it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. So what is the hedge? Uh, It might be the law. It might be the angels. Whatever the case, it's some kind of hedge of protection around this vineyard. And again, we heard in Isaiah 5, the judgment on Israel was God was going to remove uh, that hedge. What about uh, the wine fat, the wine vat? Uh, A wine vat is just a place where uh, grapes are treaded and crushed into liquid. Uh, The wine vat is what holds uh, the blood of the grapes. So in Isaiah 63, we actually read of God uh, trampling his enemies, quote, like a man treadeth in the wine vat. So this is the place where the blood of the grapes is poured out. And this almost certainly, then, is a reference to the altar of sacrifice in the court of the temple. So when you first came into the temple, the very first thing there would be is the big bronze altar. And this is where all the animals are sacrificed. There's blood just constantly flowing. Right? If you're a priest, your job is to kill stuff all, all day long. So this is uh, likely a reference to uh, the altar of sacrifice. Uh, what about the tower? Well, the tower likely refers to the actual temple and sanctuary, which was, of course, the center of the nation and the high place to which all of Israel looked. So in the parable, this tower would have functioned um, as a place to oversee what is happening in the vineyard. All right, finally, what about the husbandmen? 
uh, or, or farmers. Uh, it's really a broad uh, word in the Greek here. Who are they? Who are the husbandmen? Well, a husbandman is a farmer, specifically a vine dresser in this case. And they are what we would call kind of uh, contract workers or uh, tenants who lease the land from the owner in exchange for giving the owner a certain amount of fruit as rent. So by the end of the parable, uh, we know who these guys are. This is the scribes, Pharisees, and elders. They recognize that Jesus is talking about them. So they're the husbandmen. They are the God-ordained authority figures in Jerusalem whose job it is to guard and keep the people. They are the shepherds, they're the farmers, they're the overseers of God's property, but they are renters. They're tenants who have contractual obligations to the owner while he is away in a far country. So that's kind of our basic setup. Let us see now how this uh, scene plays out, verses 2 to 5. It says, And at the season he sent to the husbandmen a servant. And uh, that time of season, we don't know exactly how long uh, uh, passed between the time he went away and the time that fruit came, but uh, we know from uh, agriculture in Israel that usually it was about four years until some fruit would come from the vine. So he plants it, and then at the season, perhaps four years later, uh, he sends the hus- uh, to the husbandman a servant so that he might receive from the husbandman of the fruit of the vineyard. What did they do? They caught him and beat him and sent him away empty. And again, he sent unto them another servant. And at him they cast stones and wounded him in the head and sent him away shamefully handled. And again, he sent another and him they killed and many others, beating some and killing some. So here we have a new figure that is introduced. It's the servants. So who are the servants that the Lord of the vineyard sends? Well, this one's pretty easy. They're the prophets. Prophets are the ones who enforce the law of the covenant, especially when it is not being kept. So ordinarily, uh, the husbandmen would be doing this. It's actually their job to enforce the covenant, to keep the covenant. But when the priests and the scribes and the elders are failing in this duty, God raises up a prophet. Sometimes he raises a prophet from among the priesthood, sometimes from outside their ranks, but he sends them a prophet to enforce the contract, so to speak, to call them to repent and obey what they swore to do. So it says in Amos 3, verse 7, Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret to his servants, the prophets. So God has many servants, many prophets. He sends to this vineyard Elijah, Elisha, Amos, Joel, Isaiah, Hosea, Micah, Jonah, Nahum, Jeremiah, Zephaniah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Habakkuk, Obadiah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. There's many others I left out. But most recently, who did, you, uh, who did God send? Well, he sent them John the Baptist. Right? He's the last of the prophets. And the message of all these prophets could be summarized as repent and keep covenant with the Lord. That's, that's pretty much the message all the way through. Repent, turn from your sins, and keep covenant with the Lord. Uh, Listen, though, to how John the Baptist preached this message uh, to Israel. This is Matthew uh, chapter 3, verses 8 and 10. He says, Bring forth fruits, keeping with repentance. And think not to say within yourselves, 
We have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. And now also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. So notice all these references to trees and fruit. John is the last of these old covenant prophets. He is the last of the servants sent by the Lord of the vineyard to receive fruit from Israel. And John's message is that if you do not bear fruit, the axe is laid at the root of the trees, ready to cut you down and cast you into the fire. Well, how did uh, these husbandmen respond to such a message? Well, the scribes and Pharisees, we know, refused John's baptism. They refused to repent, and they were delighted when Herod cut off his head. Remember the context of this scene in Mark 12. Jesus has just asked the leaders of Jerusalem whether the baptism of John was from heaven or of men, and they couldn't answer. And so immediately after that little showdown, who gave you this authority? Uh, Jesus gives them this parable as a final warning about where they are in the timeline of the story. So Jesus is giving them in story form, what he will later make very explicit in his uh, woes against the husbandmen. Uh, So listen to this uh, lengthy section of Matthew 23. Jesus says to these same people, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and garnish the sepulchers of the righteous and say, If we had been in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Wherefore ye be witnesses unto unto yourselves that ye are the children of them which killed the prophets. Right. So they were their fathers were husbandmen who were beating these prophets, and look, they're they're doing the same thing. He goes on, fill ye up then the measure of your fathers, ye serpents, ye generation of vipers. How can ye escape the damnation of hell? Wherefore, behold, I send unto you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them ye shall kill and crucify, and some of them ye shall scourge in your synagogues and persecute them from city to city, that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel unto the blood of Zecharias, son of Berechias, whom you slew between the temple and the altar. Verily I say unto you, All these things shall come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets, and stonest them which are sent unto thee. How often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chicks under her wings, and ye would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. So this is the judgment on the husbandmen that they are going to receive if they don't repent and keep covenant. And so in verses 6 to 9, Jesus describes that imminent destruction in these terms. It says, Having yet therefore one son, his well-beloved, he sent him also last unto them, saying, They will reverence my son. But those husbandmen said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance shall be ours. And they took him and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. What shall therefore the Lord of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the husbandmen and will give the vineyard unto others. Uh, In Matthew's version of this same parable, Jesus says, 
the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof. So what is this referring to? Well, this is a prophecy about a transfer of authority, a transfer of power from these leaders in Jerusalem to Christ and the apostles. These husbandmen are going to be deposed. They're going to be fired. They're going to be thrown into the fire. And the Lord of the vineyard is going to give to the Son all authority in heaven and on earth. And then the Son delegates that authority to the apostles as they lay the foundation for the church. So the church is the new vineyard that God plants in Jesus Christ. Christ's body is composed of both Jew and Gentile, and together we are, as it says in 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God. Likewise, Paul says explicitly in 1 Corinthians 3, 9, For we are laborers together with God. Ye are God's husbandry. And it's the same word for husbandman. refers to uh, the vineyard or the cultivated land. Paul says, that's you, Corinthians. You are God's husbandry. You are God's building or household. So who is uh, the, the vineyard? It is the church. The church is God's vineyard. We are now that holy nation, and we must bring forth the fruit that the Lord of the vineyard desires. Jesus then concludes his parable by asking these husbandmen, the Sanhedrin, if they know their own songbook. He says this in verses 10 to 12. And have ye not read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected is become the head of the corner. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. So where's that a quote from? It's from Psalm 118, a psalm that they were just singing uh, during Jesus' triumphal entry a few days earlier. Here, uh, blessed be the name of the Lord. Here's, here's the son of David entering. Verse 12, And they sought to lay hold on him, but feared the people, for they knew that he had spoken the parable against them, and they left him and went their way. So Jesus uses Psalm 118, to sum up the point of his parable, which is that God himself is going to come to his vineyard, but he's going to come in the form of a servant. He will be rejected. He will be murdered by the husbandman. But somehow, miraculously, he's going to become the cornerstone for a new temple and a new nation. This is what the murder of the well-beloved son ironically brings about. For... This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. It's just like Joseph. The the brothers, they they hate him. They're envious of him, just like these men are envious of Jesus and the crowds he is gathering, and so they try to kill him. But in doing that, they actually bring about uh, their own possibility for salvation. The the brothers who tried to kill Joseph are saved. These scribes and elders who killed Jesus actually have the opportunity to repent. Jesus from the cross is going to say, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. This is the Lord's doing. This is the infinite wisdom of God uh, over evil. All right, well, that's our exposition of the text. Uh, Let us turn now to apply this parable to us uh, as the church.
Excuse me. Well, just as the nation of Israel had husbandmen or tenants to watch over and tend the vineyard for God, so also the church has elders and deacons and at times even civil rulers to watch over her. Uh, One of the major differences between Jesus' parable of the vineyard and the parable of the vineyard in Isaiah 5 is that in Isaiah, the vineyard was destroyed and laid waste, whereas what happens to the vineyard in Jesus' parable? Well, it's actually the wicked tenants who are destroyed, and then new tenants are installed, so the vineyard actually survives. Jesus says, he will come and destroy the husbandmen, but will give the vineyard unto others. So this is what we see in the book of Acts. You have this remnant of faithful Jews who were preserved. They became Christians. And then Gentiles were grafted in. They were joined together with them as the gospel went forth. This is why Paul says the gospel is to the Jew first and then to the Greek. So the Jews are the vineyard. The faithful who continue are preserved. And then Gentiles are grafted in. There is a warning then in this parable for all who are in authority, but especially for us who have authority in God's vineyard. And the warning is that if we are unfaithful tenants, if we do not keep and enforce the law of Christ, if we do not give to the master the fruit in its season, well, then we also are going to be deposed. We're going to be destroyed. How does the Apostle Paul refer to himself in so many of his letters? He refers to himself as Paul, a servant or bondservant or slave of Christ. So apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, elders, deacons, we are all servants and stewards who tend to God's property. The saints, you are God's vineyard and we together with you are God's vineyard and God wants the fruit of the spirit, justice, He wants righteousness. He wants those things to be growing among us. And our job as husbandmen, as servants, is to help make that happen among you. Of course, uh, we cannot in ourselves make anything grow. That is God's job. But as Paul says, one man plants, another waters, and it is God who gives the growth. So what is our job as elders, as deacons, as officers in the church? Well, Our job among you is to till the soil, to pull weeds, to paint buildings sometimes, uh, to prune the branches, to keep out the little foxes that soil the vines. Our job is to make sure you get plenty of sunlight and nourishment. Uh, The latter is difficult, or the former is difficult in the Northwest, we know. How do we do this? How do we tend to God's vineyard? Well, this is why we have things like Reformation Roundtable and Ladies Fellowship and Midweek Service and Psalm Sings and Feast Days and do counseling meetings and elder visits. But most importantly, this is what Lord's Day worship is. This is what our liturgy seeks to accomplish. We confess our sins, which is asking God to forgive us and take away our bad fruit. We profess our faith. And the creed, the Nicene Creed especially, is kind of like a trellis for the vine to show you how to grow up into Christ the head. We sing the Psalms to teach us how to pray, to teach us how to worship, to teach us how to feel, to teach us how to govern our feelings by the Holy Spirit. We hear the Word of God read. 
We fellowship together before and after service. We partake of communion. We play together. We eat snacks every week. We eat snacks. This is all light and fresh air that our souls desperately need. And perhaps most importantly, we hear the word of God preached. Scripture tells us that preaching is like the scattering of seed upon the soil. James 1.21 says, Receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So God, through his servants, through his ministers, through the liturgy, through his word, tends to his beloved vineyard, which is you. This is why, uh, if you read the Song of Solomon with an eye to this, uh, it is a love poem between Christ and the church. And it's also to be a, a love poem of sorts between a king and his people, right? Solomon is the king, and his Shulamite bride is the embodiment of the people. There's also imagery of her as the temple. And you'll notice there's all this language about the vineyard and the vines and the different kinds of trees and stuff. And this is a love poem from God to his church. He loves and cherishes his bride. So our job as elders, as deacons, as officers, is to make sure that you are abiding in Christ and bearing fruit for God. And what is your job? It's to bear fruit. That remains. So we each have our job. And all of us are going to have to give an account for what we did with what God entrusted to us. Right? If you're a father, your, your job is to make sure your children, your wife, are producing fruit for God. So were you faithful? Are you bearing fruit? Are you turning a profit on the trials and challenges that God has given you? Maybe it's been very, very cloudy for a long time in your life. Well, what are you doing with that? Are you serving the Lord with joy, or do you have a bad attitude? We have a great and high calling as the vineyard of God. And so look to your branches. What are you producing? Paul says, and we heard in Galatians 6, 8, and 9, For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh, surprise, reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And then Paul says, because sowing to the Spirit doesn't always get you immediate fruit, right? It takes time. Sometimes it takes years. But Paul says, let us not grow weary while doing this good work. For in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. All right, so, so don't lose heart. You keep sowing to the Spirit. You're sowing in faith. You don't know when the harvest is going to come, but God promises it will come. And most of the harvest, by the way, you're not going to see until you die. Okay, Remember that. Uh, church history is just filled with stories of many faithful saints laboring in obscure corners in the world, you know, moms who are, uh, you know, feeding hungry little souls, spanking these needy little souls, and doing this work that nobody else sees, and yet they get to heaven, and their mansion is bigger than the pastor's, okay? So may that be all of you, right? (laughs) May your heavenly mansion be larger than mine. I'll close with this. When you read this parable and see how the wicked tenants treated the Lord's servants, If you think about it, it's almost unbelievable. It kind of strains credulity that after all those deaths and beatings and mistreatment of his servants, that the Lord would think, 
I will send them my most beloved son and they will reverence him. Right? That's what he says. I'll send my son, they will reverence him. Verse six. Now, imagine this was you. Imagine you own you know, some rental property in Florida or on the other side of the country and you hire some property manager to run it for you, collect the rent, and yet you have not seen a single dollar of rent money in 15 years. Okay? You know, you've sent your employees to go collect and the property manager, manager killed them. And you did that over and over again. You sent letters. You sent more employees. And still, no rent money. 15 years. How would you feel? What would you do? Well, first of all, uh, none of us is that patient, okay? <laughs> none of us is that patient. None of us would allow 15 years to go by without getting paid from our property, Our patience would have been spent after the first year we were not paid or after, I don't know, the first guy got killed. The last thing that any of us would do is send the thing that is most precious to us to go collect from the murderous property manager, right? None of us would do that. And yet this is what God has done for the human race. He has been exceedingly and painfully patient with us and our sins. When he tells us what his name is, he calls himself slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. What is God's name? It's, he's the one that is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Psalm 103, verse 8. Think of how many years have gone by without you giving to God the fruit that he deserves. Right? All of us, have not given God sufficient fruit for what the conditions he has planted us in, okay? We all have different conditions. What, God knows what they are, and he, give, he asks a proportionate amount of fruit based on those conditions, whatever they are, whether you have a lot, whether you're little, whatever. But how many years have gone by without us giving to God the fruit that he deserves? Well, God is patient, and God gave Christ to us to give us a fresh start, to give us a living vine to abide in so that we can bear fruit, to give us Christ who is a faithful husbandman. So receive Christ. Receive forgiveness. Heed the message of the prophets to repent and keep covenant. And if you do this, you will bear fruit and you will be saved. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask that you would forgive us for all of our complaining about the conditions of our soil, of the weather, of our leaves, of our branches. God, you know how whiny we are. Forgive us for not bearing for you and to you and giving to you the fruit that you deserve. God, as we go into a new year, We ask that you would make us to abound, to not grow weary, that you would give us a season of harvest to encourage us to keep sowing, knowing that there is a harvest of joy waiting for us. As it says in the Psalms, for us who are presently sowing in tears, we are bearing precious seed. And as many days of sorrow as there have been, you will give us far more days of joy. Fix our hope Fix our faith upon that. We ask this in Christ's name.
and amen. amen. This meal is a perpetual sign of how God takes the many and unites them into one. This bread is composed of many individual grains that were ground into flour, mixed and kneaded and baked together. This wine is composed of many individual grapes that were crushed and mixed and fermented in God's cellar. We are the trees planted in God's vineyard. And when we come together, we want to offer to him and to one another our first and our best, the very fruit of the Holy Spirit. As Paul says in Ephesians 4, verse 16, when each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So tend to your branches, abide in the vine. For here at this table, the Lord of the vineyard has given you his first and his best. He has given you his well-beloved son. So come and welcome to Jesus Christ. The charge is this, if you have only one resolution going into the new year, resolve to sow to the Spirit. If you do, God promises that in due season you will reap everlasting life. Receive now the benediction. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. And amen. amen. Go in peace.